I started learning about this movement in this violence in our communities back in college. And going into my freshman year, I was in South Dakota visiting my family and kind of just seeing them before I start college. And my mom was gonna be moving back out there to live with my grandfather and help him out and stuff. And it was that summer that she was part of a search party for one of our own community members at the time. And so that moment really kind of stayed in the back of my head of like, how could someone do this to somebody? And then uh, I think it was my freshman year in um, some of my Native American studies courses, one of them actually brought up the Highway of Tears that's in Canada and started talking about this long-standing historical violence against indigenous peoples and the systems of oppression and racism and started talking about just this, this issue. And I, at that time, the phrase or name missing and murder indigenous women wasn't used not in that class so i didn't know it by by that but i knew that this is not just an isolated incident and so it made me reflect on some of the other stories that i had heard growing up and started kind of connecting the dots and seeing that you know this is an issue this is happening everywhere not just in my own community the voice you just heard was jordan marie brings three white horses daniel Jordan is a marathon and an activist for indigenous communities. A citizen of the Kuul Wakasha Oyoide Lower Brule Sioux Tribe in South Dakota, Jordan is a fourth generation runner who uses her platform to help fight for indigenous rights and make systemic change. In 2016, after joining protesters at Standing Rock and calling for a stop to the building of the Dakota Access Pipeline, Jordan founded Rising Hearts. This indigenous-led grassroots group works to dismantle white supremacy and racism and to rebuild a better future and elevate marginalized voices. Her vision is super clear, a socially, economically, and environmentally just world where all who inhabit are safe and empowered to thrive while realizing collective potential. Her advocacy begins with running. She is a very talented runner, a traditionally solo meditative act that she has turned into a means for healing this collective trauma. In 2019, Jordan became somewhat of a uh, famous person. The media picked up on her run at the Boston Marathon. She had a red handprint painted over her mouth, a symbol of the indigenous women silenced by violence. Jordan is here today to talk about how she has made running a tool for social and environmental good, the current most pressing issues for indigenous communities, and how you can get involved with making that change. And as always with the Rome From Home podcast, especially this season, that is our goal is to help you understand what you can do to move from awareness to activism. What Jordan's doing is extensive. Her organization, Rising Hearts, has many different facets, and she's going to run through all of that with us. And my recommendation would be that you just go to that website right now and check it out. She's going to drop a ton of information on us, uh, but that is the best way to really understand a lot of what Jordan is doing. And it's an amazing conversation. She's an amazing woman, and we're very grateful and honored to have her on the show. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Rome from Home podcast. We are kicking off season two. This is the podcast where we interview some of the world's most interesting, knowledgeable, and iconic explorers, athletes, scientists, and experts from the world of outdoor adventure and how they live lives of purpose. 
purpose, meaning how they cultivate their relationship with their environment, with the earth, how they work to cultivate community with others, and how they ultimately find inspiration and fulfillment for themselves and the deeper connection with themselves. So in this season on the Rome from Home podcast, we have some really exciting news in that we have a new sponsor. Uh, adventure activists have come on board for season two here to support us for the next 12 episodes. And they have a very clear vision and it's going to line up with exactly what our vision in terms of adventure with purpose is. And we're really looking to promote action and ignite change for the better through this podcast in this season. Um, The Adventure Activist is a nonprofit platform which produces unique stories and educational content to promote the charitable mission of the sustainable development goals as chartered by the UN. They uh, believe that those who are privileged enough to expand the horizons as travelers and explorers bear intimate witness to the threats of our world and are uniquely positioned and motivated to serve in return. Their programming at Adventure Activists is an educational space for the public, which presents the foundational knowledge and tools for making positive change and shared from a network of subject matter experts in diverse areas, including health, education, peace, justice, conservation, and climate. And this season, one of the co-hosts is the founder of Adventure Activist, Dr. Terry O'Connor. And we're going to be looking carefully at what effective altruism is and who is really doing the best work uh, that is leading to a better outcome for those causes. And we want to provide you, dear listener, with the tools and resources to get out, stand up, and take a stance on social issues uh, that are hindering our world from becoming a more just and beautiful place. Just a brief intro of uh, the co-hosts here, Corey Richards, National Geographic photographer, athlete, king of the conversation on season one, and uh, my co-host for all of season one. Corey, welcome. Welcome back. And my other co-host, Dr. Terry O'Connor, who is the founder of Adventure Activist. Terry really found his calling uh, in medicine by being a climber and and an adventurer. Uh, And then his work in medicine as an ER doctor that he'll talk about um, has led to his work with Adventure Activist and brings us here together today. So I'm going to throw it over to you guys um, and we'll get started. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, CJ. So this is a you know whole new season. We're coming into this. It's a little. I, I think the, the the first season we 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 were finding our voice and and so much happened over this last year. Emerging into season two, we have a much more clear voice of what we want to do. Um, so Jordan, one of the things that carried over from season one is that we found that it's far more interesting to, rather than reading a bio about you and, and putting it together from everything we find online, which there is a lot of amazing information of, of your life and your career. I would just like to ask you to introduce yourself. Tell, just tell us who you are in your own, in your own eyes and, and who you are, what you do and, and why you're here with us today. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, My name is Jordan Marie Bringsu at Horses Daniel. I am Koichasha Lakota, citizen of Koichasha Oyate, the lower rural Indian reservation in central South Dakota. I currently reside on Tongva lands, which is also known as Los Angeles, California. I wear many hats. I do a lot of things. Um, As we were discussing earlier, I can definitely multitask, but uh, my baby is Rising Hearts, and I am the founder, organizer, and executive director of Rising Hearts. And this began back in 2016 um, as part of answering that call to help raise awareness for Standing Rock and the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline and welcoming our youth who were running over 2,000 miles to Washington, D.C. And I wanted to do something that could help 
elevate their voices and why they were running for this specific purpose. Um, and so then that began there, my, my life as a community organizer and really being devoted in community and being able to elevate and give back um, you know, through a variety of ways began in that moment when I was asked to organize that event for them. I had no intentions of ever being a community organizer. I have tons of friends that were, and I just saw how stressed they were and just how much work really goes into it. And I wanted to be in DC because I wanted to work on policy and um, lobby on the Hill. And I was doing all of that. Um, but I wanted to be more behind the scenes and community organizing was just not my thing. But I just felt like I had a big responsibility to do something more than just write about it, tweet about it, share about it, donate. I wanted to do more and to give back. So that's how Rising Hearts really got started. And so simultaneously um, in Rising Hearts existence, you know, I've always worked a full time job either with the federal government or native organizations. And now currently I am a project manager and liaison with UCLA School of Medicine. Um, basically, I help researchers and faculty put together their applications for funding um, to support their studies and clinical trials. And this last year, we really pivoted everything to supporting COVID-related studies and clinical vaccine trials. Um, so it's been really great to have that insight and knowledge during this pandemic. But yeah, I'm also a professional runner with Ultra Running, Rabbit, and Ultimate Direction. Um, I'm also a consultant and do a lot of work on justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, Jedi. And I also am a filmmaker and about to um, film my first project, co-direct with my partner, as well as producing in just a couple of weeks. So that's, that's just a, a brief <laughs> synopsis of some of the things that I do. Uh, I'm laughing because it's like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's truly amazing. And, and I already feel, um, I'm, I'm lacking. So, <laughs> and I love, and I love Jedi. It's the first time I've heard Jedi. Oh, that really? seems to suit you well. It's, it is. I don't know why I haven't picked up on that, but it's a great term. Yeah, uh, it's used it's more. Cool. Uh, it's been used more in the, um, like the outdoor recreational settings in terms yeah. of diversity and inclusions work so i just i like to use it for everything because i i think that's something we can all strive for is justice for for every single person across every single platform you know what's interesting about that term too and and I, there's nothing it's it's slightly playful which i think is helpful right like mm -hmm. jedi like it, it it has this pop culture reference which is it extends sort of a gentle invitation because oftentimes these acronyms are you, you know like we get lost in them and, yeah. and so that's actually kind of a playful one that I, I really like because it, it does, it does, you know, it's like inclusive. Yeah. That's how we sort of it, get down at, uh, our weekly Jedi council meeting at Rome. It's, it's helps everybody remember it. And yeah, yeah I, I, I like that acronym. Yeah. It's one of my favorites. Uh, it definitely, um, goes well with the younger generations. So it didn't start with community organization. You were, you, you've always been a runner, right? And, and yeah. that's sort of generational in your family is that right yeah yeah i'm a fourth generation runner so it's been in my family for a long time especially in indigenous communities running is very you know integral as part of our culture and has had a much deeper meaning and connection beyond just running it is a way of carrying and delivering messages um and it's just a way of continuing you know tradition and it's something that so many that i've found 
um, along some of my prayer runs that I've done is that running is truly medicine and it is healing and it is a way to reconnect back with yourself and disconnect from like the day to day and to reconnect with yourself and, and your surroundings to the landscapes to being outside. And it just gives me such a deep appreciation for the life that we have and really grateful that like I can use running as a platform for social change. Can you expand on that a little bit more as far as using it as a platform? Because I think many people have come across this in their own way, but you know, for many of the athletes or runners who might be listening here, uh, running is, um, it, in some ways, it can seem like a very insular, introspective exercise. It's for their own healing. You use this uh, terminology of medicine. But at some point, certainly in your career trajectory, it wasn't just a solo sport, but it became a way, I guess, to find purpose and, and engage in a social impact. And you talked about this running to DC with one of your very first campaigns. I guess, how did you end up navigating into that or thinking that running would be an avenue to create a platform for yourself? Yeah, I've always, it's it's weird because I when it the moment it did happen, I'm just like, wow, I can't believe I haven't been doing this my whole life. But I think it was just meant to work out that way. But I've always just seen running as, you know, it, it grew from a family tradition, being in this cool family club that, you know, I got to be in. And you know, having a dream of making sure someone from our family, the Brings Through at Horses family, makes it to the Olympic trials because my grandfather tried and due to family circumstances, he wasn't able to go. And my mom was training for the 88 Olympics and she ended up having me. So I prevented her from going. And it's just been this dream of mine since I was little to make it to the Olympic, you know, trials, especially in the marathon, to make sure that this family legacy, that someone from our family actually gets there. Um, and then it's it's transformed to representation, being a Native woman and an athlete, a Native youth at that time, um, you know, to really bring visibility to the sport because I wasn't really surrounded, especially when I grew up mostly my, most of my life in Maine. I was really, um, you know, one of the only kids of color. And so I wanted to have that be meaningful. And especially for my family and cousins back home, anytime I would go back, I'd talk about running and like try to get them into it just so that I could be a good role model for them. And then it transformed to finally feeling like I found that that place of, of running where it was truly for me. It was not about anyone else anymore. That still that stuff is still important, but I finally reached, you know, this level of like, this is for me now, and just truly fell in love with running and the sport. And at that time, simultaneously training and like getting PRs was happening and running was just going really, really well. Then I moved to DC, where my life really, you know, I started involving myself in so many different campaigns and doing a lot of networking and trying to just be more informed about these issues that I cared about and attending my first rally to stop the Key XL pipeline, um, which are gonna be going through my homelands. And luckily the current administration stopped that from happening. So um, that began in 2014 and I just began this journey of trying to learn more. And I started getting involved in like prayer vigils and prayer runs and knowing that other groups, other relatives, other community members were doing these things to raise awareness about something, but not really raise awareness, but to honor something that meant something to them, to something that was so important and worth fighting for. 
And so I just navigated those spaces and just being a listener and being a student to learn what the proper protocols are when you organize a prayer run or a prayer vigil and making sure that when, you know, I felt comfortable doing it myself through Rising Hearts or just me, that I'm doing it in a good and respectful way. And then the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous relatives, women and girls and two spirits. You know, I started learning more and more about that and the connection to man camps and pipelines and just the issue in and of itself um, and having a relative who was murdered. And so I just started involving myself in everything that I could. And it just got to a point where it felt like our lives are expendable, that we are more vulnerable and we are targets and that no one cares about indigenous peoples. And we are constantly erased from the conversations, always fighting our own erasure and always constantly feeling like I'm a voice to be like, yes, and, and like always trying to like be that voice in um, any diversity, equity and inclusion space or just any space in general when we're talking about justice, just feeling really, I guess, disappointed that no one cared that hundreds of our relatives are going missing that I found running as a way to give back to them. And that began in 2018 at the San Diego Half Marathon, where I decided to dedicate my bib number instead of having my name on it, hoping it would spark conversations. And during that year, I had organized other a prayer run and some panels to talk about this, um, especially in LA. And then a year goes by the same race again. I do it again. Couple conversations. People ask what it means, what the hashtag means, how can they help? Um, and that was great. And then five weeks later, the Boston Marathon happens. And it got to that point where it just felt like, I feel like no matter what I do, how many things I organize and speak out about this and you know, try and elevate the advocates and the families that are, have been impacted by this and do this work, felt like no one cared about us, that you know, it's okay that another indigenous woman or man or elder goes missing. And it was just this decision, this last minute decision at the starting line in Boston was, I'm just gonna run in prayer. This is, running is the only thing I know how to do and I'm just gonna give back to them. And so that's where I made the decision to put the movement and this epidemic on my body by painting the letters on my body and putting the red handprint over my mouth to symbolize the violence that is taking our relatives and had 26 names for missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. And I wanted that space to be intentional, every mile to be intentional and purposeful for them, prayers for them, their family, their, their communities and prayers for our next generation so that this epidemic is not here anymore. And um, then I try to enjoy the rest of that mile because it's the Boston Marathon and I love that course and the atmosphere. And then I was started all over again. But I was so heartbroken that no one cared that I'm just like, still no one cares. Indigenous people are the only ones that talk about this issue constantly. That when I made the post a couple days later, talking about my prayer run and putting their names in that post of who I ran for, I still was like, no one's really going to care. And then everything changed. Everything changed. It went viral, all these opportunities to speak to their name and to speak to this issue and to help elevate the advocates and organizations that are dedicating their lives to this work. It just opened so many opportunities to have this be visible. And then the next best thing, it inspired a next generation runner, Rosalie Fish, um, who reached out to do the same thing, asking if she could do um, a prayer run at her high school track meet and wanted to do the same exact thing. And I was like, yes, of course. And I'm not going to be the only one now because 
at that time I was really struggling with how to decompress and understand and what this really means and how am I going to continue this moving forward. But that moment really gave purpose to my, my running a new purpose. And so I really like to phrase it as running with purpose and running for justice. And that is how I've been competing now. I, every, every race that I do is, is a prayer run and I don't plan on stopping until this epidemic is gone and over with. And I don't know if that's going to happen in my lifetime, but I hope it does. Until then, it's still running for justice and running for them to elevate this issue. Um, sorry, I just started crying. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't, it's just a lot. Uh, and it's so, it's so beautiful. Can you, just for people that, because you, you got into it really, that, that piece of this conversation, I mean, we were going to ask you all those questions and like. she It's like she read the script. We just, <laughs> nailed, we just nailed like four questions here. <laughs> Can you just expand on uh, murdered and missing indigenous women and girls and two-spirit individuals yeah. and, and just tell people the epi- give people some more background to the epidemic that you're actually speaking to because, and I'm going to be very honest here, I was completely ignorant to it and, and the statistics until I started reading about you, right? And, and, and that's, I think that's the, that's the fucking problem. Yeah. So, and it's, it's gravitational when you, when you put some numbers to it. Yeah. I mean, you, you say it perfectly. It comes down to, as I've, after that run, it really came down to me just realizing this is an issue just people don't know about. And yeah, there are some reasons as to why it happens. You know, you have institutionalized racism, racism, white supremacy, and systems of repression that are perpetuating the cycle of violence. But also it comes down to lack of education about it. So I want to start with this epidemic, and it's a silent crisis, really, um, international crisis. It's not just happening here in the United States. It's happening north with our First Nations relatives. It's happening to the south, to our southern relatives. It's happening in South America. It's happening in Australia. It's happening everywhere. And so this is a much bigger issue. But speaking to missing and murdered Indigenous women, this movement really began with our First Nations relatives up in Canada. And they began this movement by by raising awareness about the missing women relatives that were disappearing from Highway 16, which is also known as the Highway of Tears. Um, And so this has been a decades long fight uh, for justice. And so now, um, you know, I feel like the United States has really been kind of following their lead and starting to raise more awareness about this issue happening here um, and really learning from them by them leading this movement. So I always want to give credit to our First Nations relatives for really starting this. Um, And so now we're with them in solidarity and doing it together. And it's, you know, the best resource I can recommend to anybody is to Google Urban Indian Health Institute and type in, you know, the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls report. This report came out in November of 2018, and it was over, I think, 73 urban cities. And this is just urban cities, urban natives, not counting rural or reservations. Um, But this was done in these specific cities. And it showed just in 2016 alone, 5,712 indigenous women and girls were reported missing. And only 116 were reported in the federal database with the Department of Justice. So you can see the lack, 
you can see the inequities there. You can see the injustice happening right there. But you also have to break it down too. It's not just that reporting, it comes down to law enforcement. It comes down to when families have a loved one that's going missing, they report it to um, law enforcement. And back to what I said, there's racism that exists everywhere and stereotypes. So when they report it, a lot of the time, they're made to feel like they're making a big deal out of it. They're told to come back after the weekend or come back in a few days. And sometimes they're even making comments of like, oh, they're just out partying. Oh, they're just out doing this. And a lot of the time it's the families that are leading these search parties right off the bat. The community comes together to help support them, to try and find their loved ones because those, those first 48 hours are absolutely critical in being able to try and find them. Um, and so law enforcement has failed us in being able to be there to support us. And the federal government has failed us in being able to support us. And it just is, is such a big issue in the fact that it comes down to every indigenous person I know, like I don't know a single indigenous person that hasn't been impacted by this, whether it's a direct relative in their family that has been missing or murdered, or they know someone who has been missing or murdered. And we, it's, it's, it's in our community, it's in our circles and it's constantly there. And this is an issue that you know, needs to have some sort of solutions to. And Anita Lucchesi of the Sovereign Bodies Institute, who also helped author that um, MMIW report, she said it best. And this is why the fight is so hard. Our relatives go missing three times. They go missing in life, they go missing in the data, and they go missing in the media. And so not only are we trying desperately to fight for them, to just find them and to fight for justice, but we're also fighting for media time. We're also fighting, you know, in the data to be accurately represented. And so back to the whole issue of law enforcement, when they make a, a report, if the law enforcement officer is not paying attention to his system, it'll automatically default that missing person to Caucasian. So they'll be actually misgendered or mislabeled in that report. And so that's why they also go missing in the data and Sovereign Bodies Institute, where Anita um, founded this amazing organization and the first database ever tracking, you know, our relatives, you know, she does a lot of work working with law enforcement to try and go over these reports again to actually correct them, to go back into them, to making sure that they're not going missing in the data too, um, because that data also will dictate the kind of funding some of these programs get to help support these initiatives of violence against women and Office of Violence Against Women and Department of Justice and um, everything that's part of that. So this is such a big issue, but it really comes down to our relatives being expendable, to being targets that, you know, there are phrases of our communities being referenced as, you know, open season because people know about the jurisdictional loopholes that exist, that they know that they can get away with a crime, whether that's drug trafficking or human trafficking, they cannot be prosecuted you know, by that tribe. They would have to be escorted off those tribal lands back to the state where the state can't do anything because it didn't happen on state lands because it happened on tribal lands. And so then there's this big gray area of tribal nations not being able to exercise their tribal sovereignty. And luckily that's changing now with the Violence Against Women Act, um, the special domestic criminal, the special domestic violence criminal jurisdiction um, task force and pilot program that's being enacted that's having uh, tribal nations 
be part of this new pilot to start implementing um, their own tribal laws and their own justice system to be able to prosecute non-indigenous offenders on their own lands in their own courts. Um, but yeah, that didn't happen until 2013. And so we're definitely very behind in terms of government of being able to allow indigenous nations, tribal nations to do what they can because we're very, very and fully capable um, of being able to handle those tasks. Um, God, you know, you just mentioned this one solution um, and you've done so much to make us aware of this problem. And, and thanks again for answering Corey's question. What other paths forward do you see uh, for solving this crisis? What I see is, you know, it's it's a lot of work, but in the much bigger holistic picture, we got to eliminate and dismantle white supremacy and racism, because a lot of the time that's what it comes down to of our relatives being taken and murdered because of these systemic issues that have been very present in our communities since the founding of this country. Um, we need to start attacking those because that is perpetuating these cycles of violence, not just for indigenous communities, but for our black communities, for Asian communities, for our Muslim communities, for our Jewish communities. And that's just speaking to this last year of what we've been seeing. Um, and we also need funding to support these incredible inspiring native organizations that are focused on domestic violence awareness and programming, sexual assault, human sex trafficking, safe housing, um, and MMIW, MMIR initiatives. And that funding can go a long way. And I also think we need to have more voices at, this, at the table, especially the government. I was just on a webinar for Operation Lady Justice, which was enacted by the former administration. And there's already a lot of problems with that issue because they're trying to address this epidemic and find solutions. But the one thing that is missing from that task force is advocates and families who have lost a loved one. We, we need them part of this process of what are the solutions? What can we be doing? We need to be learning from them. Um, and I don't see that representation often reflected. And it's a lot of the time the native led organizations that are creating these coalitions and councils, um, you know, and task forces within their own states to have that representation, but we need it on a federal level. Um, because if we're not having it at the federal level, then it's not going to go in the direction that we need it to go for this for us to find solutions. And we also need people to, you know, become more informed. We're constantly, I feel like educating and being voices and doing campaigns and you know, talking about this, but we need media support. We need those connections to help talk about this, to help give a platform to this issue or to a family if they want to speak out about this. Because, you know, I, I this is sometimes what I wish is like, I wish we could take the model of how strong and supported the Black Lives Matter movement is. I wish we could have that for this movement. Because if we did, then I feel like we would be getting the support that we constantly need because this would be constantly talked about. This would be constantly in the media. And a lot of the time it gets overshadowed by everything. And um, it's just not an important issue for, for other platforms and other people with platforms. And it just comes to lack of representation in the media too. Um, there are a bunch, I guess there's a bunch of ideas of solutions that I could offer, but really 
we need people to be more informed about this. We need people to show up for, for us and our communities and the organizations and the advocates and the families that are a part of this. Um, just an example of one thing is in the last few months, I've been working with the Elizabeth Smart Foundation, and we're going to be launching a campaign together uh, March 7th through the 13th, a campaign called Find the Mall. And Elizabeth Smart has recognized that she has a platform and she does have a certain kind of privilege so that there, it's a big difference between the support and visibility that she got in the media and how she was found. It's very different in what an Indigenous kid or girl or relative would have. And so now she's creating this program to help support MMIR, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Relatives, and working with tribal communities, and now working with my organization, Rising Hearts, to collaborate on this week campaign to help center advocates' voices. We're gonna have, um, I think, a few different representations from four different organizations doing this work um, to talk to them about the work that they're doing. How can we support? What else can we do to engage the community? Um, but it's things like that that can go a long way. And establishing and cultivating those kind of partnerships and relationships is super important. Um, and I'm all about collaborating. I'm all about doing what can be best for the movement overall. And if that means working with someone who is not Indigenous, but is willing to create a platform and a pathway to, to work with you and have you and your communities benefit from that and they can help support that, then like, I think that is great. That is the perfect kind of allyship and co-conspirator that I would love to be working with. So that, I think that brings up a really, really good question is, and it really what I think this whole season is about for us and, and it seems like beyond that is moving from awareness right into activism and so many people that we in this community do have platforms and i think they oftentimes feel paralyzed or pulled in so many different directions that they end up doing and i think i'm guilty of this quite honestly you know with with the amount of followers or whatever i have or other people like me have um you know we almost don't know kind of what the fuck to do with it. Right. And so moving from, because we all look, we, not all of us know about this issue, but you can, you know, whether it's climate change, racial injustice, you know, the, we know the issues. I don't think awareness, I mean, certainly that we need more awareness, but, but oftentimes the, the big leap is awareness to activism. And you, you've done a really good job with that as an individual, but also as an athlete. Can you, can you speak to that a little bit for people who do feel paralyzed in, yeah. in this moment? This is probably my, the, the, the work that is my favorite. So the way I was raised, this phrase and teaching was always said to me all the time, whether that was through ceremony, that was in life. Metakuya um, Yasin, we are all related or all my relations that I can be a voice and an advocate and be an indigenous woman, a Lakota woman and fight for my people. But at the end of the day, indigenous peoples were never, were never selfish. We always thought about the bigger picture. We always think holistically and that holistic vision is inclusion of everybody. Um, you know, fighting for a, a safer and more protected planet, Unchimaka, Grandmother Earth, and all living beings, human to animals that we were never above or below any one of those, that we were equal. And so this teaching has always stuck with me. And I always felt like I was really kind of the, the odd one because I felt like 
I wanted to help build community. I wanted to help bring us together. And that's what my, my Lakota name, Chungleshka Washtewi, translates to is, you know, bringing the people, making the, the circle whole, bringing the people together. And I always felt like I never lived up to that name until I became a community organizer, until I found my calling. I always felt like they gave me the wrong name and I truly hadn't earned it until that moment happened. Um, and now I feel like I, I have earned it and it is a name that I'm going to honor and respect and continue to live by. But I have always had this vision of like, without knowing the word intersectionality, because that is more of a newer concept that I've been like learning about over the last couple of years. But I always felt like I had this vision of intersectional collaborations, intersectional communities working together across all platforms. I just never had the word to like call what I felt like I believed in. And so now that I have learned about intersectionality and Kimberly Crenshaw and all of her work that she's done um, on intersectional theory and being an inter intersectional environmentalist council member and just learning more about it, I have something to truly call what I'm, I've been working for my whole life is community building to create spaces, to call people in, not call people out and to bring us together, to be able to sit and learn from each other, to understand each other's lived experiences. So that way we are not remain siloed in our own movements, which tends to happen. And I totally understand it. I did that too, because you desperately want to protect and fight for your own community. And that in and of itself is a big task and a big responsibility that you're like, oh my gosh, how can I think of trying to support other communities right now too, when I need to support my own. But I think we can truly get to a place where we can fight for transformational change when we can come together as communities, when we can understand the braiding of how our communities are very similar in some of the things we experience, maybe in a different capacities, but we truly experience them at the same time, you know, especially this last year, you know, our Asian communities, Muslim communities, Jew Jewish communities, indigenous and black, you know, this last year I've really seen it coming from my friends that are part of these communities of white supremacy, ra racism, hate crimes, all of this happening, um, but it's happening in kind of different ways. So being an advocate and a community organizer, I, I just see it as creating opportunity to bring us together. So when I'm talking about an issue of MMIR, I'm always also connecting it to, you know, this is the same thing happening with our black brothers and sisters to our relatives. Um, this is something that we can come together into this space to learn, see what we can do and how we can support where we can show up to be an ally. And when we all come together collectively, we can then fight for that transformational change that needs to happen for us to dismantle these institutionalized barriers to dismantle, you know, some of these infrastructures, these constructs that have been created to never benefit us. And so I'm all about creating opportunity to bring people together. I will always save space for that issue, to, for, for that community to speak to it, to talk about it, but also always opening it up and being a welcoming and hopefully a safe space that people can come in and learn. People can ask questions, um, you know, without being targeted and or feeling afraid to ask the wrong questions. We're all going to get it wrong. We're all going to make mistakes. I've made plenty of mistakes in these organizing spaces. But as long as you're doing it in a good way of, OK, I just made this mistake. This is what I need to do to not do it again. Or this is the question or the way I need to ask it um, and move from there. And that's what I, I truly believe in is community building. And that's 
all part of the new programming that Rising Hearts has been doing of creating Running on Native Lands to big bring greater awareness about land acknowledgements and the first peoples of these lands and how we connect to them in the running and outdoor spaces to indigenous wellness through movement of being able to have a majority of our wellness teachers, yoga teachers, dance, whatever it is, you name it, um, coming from POC communities, but also being an inviting space for everyone to learn and be part of, to create a space where someone like me or a youth can see a teacher that looks like them um, and they can feel safe and connected because they, they see themselves in that person. Um, creating virtual runs to raise awareness about causes and issues of what we're trying to fundraise for. Like this last one, Running on Native Lands, we raised over $26,000 and 10,000 each, 10,000 went to Indig International Indigenous Youth Council and 10,000 went to um, Unity Runners Run for Brianna Taylor. Um, so it's all about building intersectionality, even within the rising heart spaces that, yes, we are indigenous led, we are going to talk about indigenous issues, but we're also going to create space for other issues that we believe in too, because we need to show up as an ally as well. Um, so it's creating an opportunity and community building. That's part of my favorite work. I want to um, follow up uh, this great information. I think what Corey was asking you is effectively, how do we become good, effective allies and, um, your answer was illustrative in a lot of ways, but I, I do want to um, bring up maybe two questions, maybe a little bit of a, a challenge or highlighting what we sometimes see as pitfalls, but really just to kind of help us be more effective um, in engaging with these movements going forward. So I appreciate the offer to, to, to call us in and not call us out. And I think that brings up pitfall number one is that um, many people that may have ways and means, you know, even to financially support a cause, um, might feel self-conscious that they don't have the street cred, like they're not legitimate, right? Mm -hmm. And clearly your story um, is an embodiment that you are an effective voice because you have a very authentic connection to the causes, um, MMIR and, and some of the other causes we've outlined so far. Uh, what do you say to someone that wants to support you but feels paralyzed by that lack of legitimacy? And, and to bring them in and to let them join this intersectional movement with you. Yeah, so myself, Rising Hearts is very approachable. Um, you know, we put out our, our messages, we put out our emails to make them available because we want people to ask those questions. How do I begin? How do I start? Where can I show up? When's the next event that I could attend to become more informed? And it's about just establishing those conversations and dialogue and it's going to start out small for some people that I have worked with who were in that in that state state of you know very nervous or didn't want to co-opt or didn't want to be performative um, they didn't want to be taken that way but they wanted to do something you know it just starts out as conversations being able to help answer any questions or concerns that they may have and just making sure that the spaces that we're creating is a safe environment that they can feel safe enough to join and be part of, even if they're just coming in and sitting in as a listener. And I always recommend that first, if you're gonna attend any of the Rising Hearts events to come in as a listener, be a student, learn, and you know, always follow up with us, either direct message or emails to ask questions. Um, but like I said, I always preface this too is, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to say it wrong. That's okay. As long as you're, you acknowledge that you made a mistake and that you said it wrong and are willing to continue your journey on that path forward, then you're okay in my books. And 
I, I always try and tell people it is really daunting. It is really scary. It was scary for me when I started community organizing because I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have connections. Like everything was either out of my pocket or, you know, things were just done very chaotically. And I feel like that's the start of every community organizer's, you know, journey um, is they're always kind of like winging it. Um, but it's just about meeting community. It's that's what I feel like truly makes someone more comfortable is when they get those invitations and they know that it's okay to join. Um, I always am kind of like the mother goose in these settings. I'm always like making sure I follow up and reach out to them or, you know, just make those connections, especially if we're in person, just to like remind them, like, you have every right to be here. This is how we're going to move forward as a community together. Um, and by you being afraid to not take that chance to come into this space, you know, that's, we're not going to be able to move forward together. Um, so yeah, I guess it just comes down to asking questions, asking the right, the, I guess asking the questions in our, in the right and respectful way without being taxing on that person's voice or their energy or the space that they're creating. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's a, it's a hard question to answer. Um, yeah. I think one of the things you said that resonates with me, Jordan, is, you know, to, to show up, uh, you know, one thing you can do is show up, right. And be a student, um, and be unafraid to do that first, because if you show up as a student and you listen, that's sort of the first step before you even start asking questions to a degree, but there is, you, you said it, you said, you know, to not be afraid. And I think that's, that's a, to, to go to Terry and Corey's question, there is, as we're trying to speak to our audience at writ large, you know, that, that you have to be willing to get out there and skin your knees a little bit as an ally. Mm -hmm. And you are going to make mistakes, like you said, uh, just your experience, you know, in, especially coming from like my perspective as a, as a white straight guy, like you're going to make mistakes and you have to be willing to be sort of unafraid to, to take your, to, like I said, skin your elbows and knees a bit. Yeah. Um, if you come in with the intent of, of listening first, and it's not, I'm, I'm in that student phase myself. Um, but I, I think you could boil that down really to, if you feel like you want to be an accomplice, an ally, an advocate, then don't be afraid. You yeah. have to, you know, you have to, you have to take that action. And sometimes it could be stepping stones, you know, sometimes it just, someone is, I can only offer a donation. Like that's, that means that can make a huge difference. Just supporting the work, the advocates or the community organizer, um, or that event that can go a long way financially. Um, or it can just also be more personal of, you know, reading the books. Like if you visit my personal website, jordanmariedaniel.com on my resources tab, I list out a whole bunch of books from, you know, black authors, indigenous authors, Asian, Muslim, um, you know, talking about the holistic picture of what our communities are going through, what we have been going through from past to present, um, talking about some of these more newer issues that are happening in the last few years. But for someone who is maybe a little bit more shy and hesitant, you know, I'd always recommend if you're able to give don't like by a donation, do that. You're supporting the work. That's how you're showing up as an ally and just in that way. Or you can start your own education of by reading these books or listening to the list of podcasts that I provided. Um, and then maybe that next step is, okay, this event is happening or this rally is happening or this panel is happening. I'm gonna show up, whether that's in person or virtual, depending on if we're still in a pandemic. 
um, that that can be the next step. And that's something that I always will recommend to is, um, you know, I, I always forward that resources page for them to start learning about what's going on in our communities and how they can um, be more informed to something that they have never been exposed to. I think it's I think it's important to remind people that you know there is a pathway in this and it does start with awareness like you're talking about education and then it moves into sort of stewardship or ally you know and then it and then it jumps to at least in my experience then it jumps to activism and and oftentimes being an ally and being an activist um co-opt one another they are they're they're in tandem but it's also okay to to like you said, you're learning a new language. When you when you learn when you when you start to speak a new language physically, like a, say you're learning something, you're going to make all sorts of mistakes in mm -hmm. in in the structure of sentences and your grammar. That's okay. You'd want somebody to correct you if you were trying to speak fluently. Mm -hmm. um, and so that you know, that's something that I have to remind myself when I inevitably. Uh, make mistakes in, in these conversations because I do it all the time. I've probably done it during this conversation, you know? So I just want to remind people that that's part of the process and the discomfort is something to look into and lean into uh, as much as, as, as unpleasant as it is sometimes. Yeah, I, yeah. Couldn't, I couldn't agree more with that statement. And I think I've just picked up on so many things that all three of you have said that really exemplifies for me that the space for this is in conversation. And in fact, there's another great book called Reclaiming Conversation by Sherry Turkle, who's a professor at MIT, about how digitized forms of communication really don't leave this opportunity to make a mistake, be forgiven for a mistake, to have someone give you feedback in real time and their energy, uh, even virtual, just mm -hmm. looking at someone's energy and communication to say, hey, no, it's okay. I appreciate that you are invested. You're making an effort. You want to know better. You're trying to learn how to speak the language. Uh, we've all botched foreign languages when we're, when we're traveling and we're speaking with others. But uh, in my experience, 99 times out of 100, they look at you and they smile because they appreciate you're making the mm -hmm. effort. Um, and so I, I, I do think you guys really highlight some important, uh, basically important points about just having the conversation and showing up. Oh, yeah. Like I just taught a uh, talking circle within UCLA last week about the meaning of a name and the importance of saying the name correctly. And talking about pronouns like you can break it down to a much smaller scale just the importance of someone's name I, I get misgendered all the time because I'm Jordan Daniel everyone always just assumes I'm a boy or the way my email comes up sometimes Daniel comes up first then Jordan so they assume I'm my name is Daniel um, but then they'll like call me Daniel all the time and it's just like I constantly have to tell them and remind them hey my name is Jordan Marie Daniel I, as I said in the introduction and sometimes they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, thank you for letting me know. And then some just completely ignore it and don't even, you know, acknowledge uh, my statement. But it came down to us telling each other and introducing ourselves to people we already know, people we've already been working with, but just saying who we are unapologetically, how to pronounce our names, because some of us do have names that, you know, we've struggled with pronouncing. Um, and just creating that safe space of like, this is okay, we're gonna make mistakes. Like I definitely have called one of my colleagues, you know, I pronounced it wrong so many times, um, but being able to like hear his story and tell us the meaning of his name and how he got it and us practicing how to pronounce it together can go such a long way in terms of respect, including like creating a safe environment to feel included and to be seen. And then we went into the next part of talking about pronouns, like, 
you, you don't want to disrespect someone by misgendering them or assuming and talking about language. Like I, I say thank you, but when I'm communicating with someone or working with someone, I always offer this as a piece of advice. This can go a long way is saying, I appreciate you. And so when I'm working with people and I know that they're doing things for me and they're supporting me, you know, I'm always just like constant reminding, like saying like, hey, thank you so much. I appreciate you and what you're doing. And it got to the point where like multiple people were responding, saying like, hey, I, you're the first person I've ever seen that says I appreciate you and not like, thank you. And now I'm seeing it in other like conversations. And this truly like has a big impact on feeling respected and feeling um, you know, valued in the work that we do. And so I always talk about our use of language and how it can have such a big impact for just one person and how you respond to them and talk to them. Um, so that's all part of that whole like learning and being able to show up and learning how we can push ourselves out of our comfort zone to start trying to put these practices into play. But then you see the outcome of those responses of people really enjoying that, people really being valued in that and just that one word change i appreciate you um and so they it, it makes a huge big difference it's such a good point i <laughs> i actually it's funny that you say that because i've i i do that all the time in text messages too I, I i make a point to say i appreciate you um but i i wonder if i could do a better job of saying it more frequently and and actually working to exchange thank you strictly for just that as a practice more than anything else. I mean, when you feel that, I think that goes back to all sorts of mindfulness conversations that we've had, especially in the first season about, um, you know, gratitude. And one of the ways that we, we can bring people together in community is by expressing gratitude for however they choose to show up. So if that yeah. is the donation that they have or simply listening or, you know, saying, Hey, I read the book or wh whatever it happens to be expressing gratitude for that effort and meeting them where they are at in their journey with this, I think is really important because I know personally that the overwhelm that comes with feeling like you have to do it all and say it all and be it all. Um, even in your introduction, I'm like, Jesus Christ, I'm not doing enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know what you, I mean? You do like, need to do it all though, Corey. I know I do need that. to do it all. So I just, I, but meeting people where they're at in, in that sort of not so subtle and very deliberate um, yeah. expression, I think is really valuable. And another example too, is what I teach is no matter who you are, the color of your skin, your lived experience, when we're coming into these spaces to learn, sometimes that can trigger us that can trigger us with how that person said it their experience it might have you know set them off emotionally or they're feeling something and when someone wants to respond and include their lived experience a lot of the times we tend to use the word but like but like and i always advise to replace but with and to continue the conversation because mm -hmm. when you use the word but when you're responding to someone who is trying to share their lived experience or this knowledge and you're saying, but you're interjecting with your opinion that it's more superior to theirs. And so when you just replace, but with, and you're continuing that conversation, um, in a more respectful way. And it's something that I've, I've taught, you know, my colleagues and people within my circles and they're like, Oh my gosh, I've been trying to do this. I keep like messing up and like, I'm trying not to. And then sometimes I can remember, but it does make a difference and mm -hmm. it, it, it can make a difference for someone who, especially as, you know, you know, for me, 
being a woman of color and sharing my in my experience, you know, I've had, you know, microaggressions, passive aggressiveness happen um, and validation coming within the workspaces and especially white men, you know, will interject and say, but and like will try to correct me as if they know my lived experience, mm-hmm. then that immediately makes me feel really unsafe and can set me off and make me, you know, not want to be part of this conversation anymore. But when we use that word and to continue the conversation, to allow us to continue the conversation together, then that's a more constructive way of being able to be in that space together to talk about whatever issue it is. Yeah, it's a great point. They actually teach this in medical school too, when we're trying to acquire a history uh, from a patient about what's concerning them or troubling them is to never use but because it, it has a tendency to invalidate mm-hmm. the whole story they've just shared with you and 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 then you've lost them in the conversation. Um, so, uh, you know, this information's out there and it's predated mansplaining. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, we appreciate you too, Jordan. And we do want to be respectful for your time. I think um, I, I'm so curious, just thinking about the audience um, who might be listening to this. If you have uh, maybe you know two or three most important things you've learned from kind of moving from this this space of you know your professional running into what's clearly in, uh, saturated so much of your time in social activism, and then we also want to make sure we we give you the floor for some time if there's anything we've missed. Uh, that you want to direct people to, we'll certainly provide links in the show notes to so many of the great organizations and ways to contribute that you have so far. But um, I guess I'm just asking for some advice and, and maybe some some passing pearls for us. Yeah, don't be afraid to ask questions and <laughs> yeah. don't be afraid to make mistakes. Have patience, be willing to be more comfortable having to just be quiet. I'm someone that's very loud in my head and constantly thinking about everything so sometimes i'm not doing my best part of sitting in and being present to pay attention um but that's that's the biggest advice i have especially if with anyone coming into these organizing advocate advocate activism spaces is you know come in as a student come in to listen ask questions no question you know is dumb or the wrong question as long as you are asking it in a respectful way and you know just have confidence in what you believe in really that's what it's about if there's something that you are so passionate about and that you think is so important and worth fighting for go and do it because for me it started out with just me i i felt this calling and this need to do something more and it started with me showing up with my signs by myself at the white house or at army corps of engineer and then that grew to my friends coming with me and more community coming with me and needing meeting other community members that are doing this work too, to be part of a much bigger network of those doing this work. Um, So don't be afraid if it's just you, because one person can have such a difference and make such a powerful impact in this world. And that sets off a beautiful ripple effect of, I think, change. And that's the change that we need to be be seeing and the change that is happening now. Um, So that's my biggest piece of advice. And yeah, if Anyone listening to this, you guys are always welcome in the Rising Hearts spaces. You can go to www.risinghearts.org. We have several programs right now. We just launched 19 virtual donation-based classes with a monthly membership option to participate in all of these classes. You got powwow yoga, you got you know community Reiki, you got MoFlow, you got functional training, you got core, you got all sorts of stuff um, to be part of. And so that's pro- that program is there. 
Also, if anyone that's a runner that has been asking themselves, how can I intersect running with advocacy? We just launched a program yesterday called Running with Purpose Community Club Team. Right now, we can only accept 25 um, applications. Um, as we're trying to get more funding, we're hoping to just accept every single application that comes in, but it's building a community, um, a running collective to push for social, social chains and using, using our platform, our running platform to bring in what we care about, to talk about this, to work with our partners, to virtually organize running events, to support each person's cause. So 25 causes, hopefully, um, to fundraise for those causes, to start talking about how can I be showing up for you and learning about all of these other issues that I'm sure that I know nothing about that's going to be part of these conversations. And so it's really building a community and family within the running space and within this club, um, you know, to impact social change in a much bigger way. Um, then we also have the Running on Native Lands initiative to start implementing land acknowledgements on all running and outdoor spaces, platforms, um, and being able to partner with us. I think right now we have several partners that have, take, have, that have taken on this initiative with us that are gonna start implementing these at their races and events. Um, and then we have our other advocacy efforts, climate justice, social justice, um, missing and murdered indigenous relatives, change the name, not your mascot. And then we also have our Matakuyo Yasin COVID relief program where we help deliver masks and face shields. Um, so that program is gonna continue until we're no longer in a pandemic and those resources are no longer needed. But so far, um, yeah, that's what we're doing. We have um, the run for Pravanga, Pravanga sacred sites and lands virtual run happening March 20th through the 28th going to be a virtual 5k 10k half marathon and um, half the proceeds are going to be supporting uh, protect Pavangna to support their lawsuit and protecting the sacred site in Long Beach um, but also bringing a greater awareness of public lands protecting sacred sites protecting lands and why we need to protect them from fossil fuel infrastructure projects and other um, dirty infrastructure projects um, and then we have the find them all campaign with the Elizabeth Smart Foundation happening March 7th through the 13th then in May, we have a virtual run May 5th through the 9th. Um, National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Relatives is May 5th. So we're organizing a virtual run for five days to help fundraise to support National Indigenous Women's Resource Center. Again, we helped fundraise for them last year. And then the Native Women's Society of the Great Plains. And then the other portion of the proceeds will go back into Rising Hearts programming. So that's what we're up to. That's what you guys can be part of. Um, and I hope to hope to see you guys there. It's an amazing amount of work, Jordan. Um, we are going to take all that into the show notes. Um, I, <laughs> yeah. I don't even know how you keep all of that just straight it, it, in <laughs> being in the middle of it. I would definitely recommend for our listeners to go to risinghearts.org because much of what Jordan is talking about is beautifully outlined on that website. And there's ways that you can interact ways you can donate, be a part of it. Um, that's a good sort of co core resource for all of that that you just put out there. Um, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Um, and we appreciate you deeply <laughs> for being here. Um, I also just, uh, you know, we're, we're, Corey and I are in, in Boulder, Colorado, which is Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho ancestral lands. And Terry, you're up there in, in Idaho. Do you, do you know your land acknowledgments? Uh, there is, uh, well, Shoshone and I'm trying to remember what's up in Custer County again. I'll have to check there. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a, that's something that uh, at Rome we've we've really started to take a look at in, in terms of awareness. I think it's um, it is a, it's a great. I know it's not the whole at all, but it's a great first step. It, it just for myself, it's it's been it's been great to actually understand uh, the land that we're standing on and the history and to do that research does start to, to bring some, you know, a basic understanding and awareness and appreciation for the, these cultures that, you know, on, on these lands. So um, we'll continue to do that on the, on the show, Jordan. Um, and as we sign off here again, thank you so much for, for joining us and Terry and Corey, anything else before we, before we go? And then Jordan, will give you the last word. Well, I just say that there's, if there's anybody in the audience who still like, is like, I don't know what to do. Just look at the show notes. There's like yeah. 50 things that Jordan just gave you as an option to just like dip your toe, just dip the toe and there's, and you, and you're good to go. Um, anyway, I, and, and that, again, I just want to say, I appreciate you and thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time, Jordan. It was an inspiration. Really appreciate all your efforts. Mila Palamayaye, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in to Rome from Home. If you liked today's episode, you can help us out by subscribing and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or any place that you get your podcasts. You can find us on social media at Rome and at The Adventure Activists. You can find me on Instagram at, at CJ Rome and Terry is at C Terry Go. That's S E E. And Corey is at Corey Richards. For resources and ways to get involved, go to romemedia.com uh, for this episode's show notes and all the other stuff. And special thanks to our producer, Healy Cruz. This episode of Rum From Home is brought to you by Adventure Activists. Adventure Activists is a nonprofit platform which produces unique stories and educational content to promote the charitable mission of the Sustainable Development Goals. They call on experts to help with storytelling around health, education, peace, justice, conservation, and climate. And that's what we're all about here on the podcast Rum From Home. Also, this podcast is brought to you by Rome Academy. Rome Academy is Rome's educational platform where you can connect with the greatest icons, adventurers, photographers, and filmmakers of our day. And they will teach you subjects, uh, everything from skiing and snowboarding to surfing, photography, adventure storytelling, how to achieve your dreams, fitness. It's all on there. It's the masterclass of the outdoors, if you will. So check that out. If you enjoy this podcast, that's how we stay in business is our membership with the Rome Academy. You can find us at romemedia.com. Real simple. Thanks for listening. 